1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Chris Gambino, your channel host. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Nicoletta Battini about the new book, The Economics of Sustainable Food, Smart Policies for Health and the Planet. Dr. Battini, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Chris. Thank you. So Nicoletta, if you will, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Absolutely. So I'm um, originally from Italy, and I am currently the lead evaluator of the International Monetary Fund, working in the independent evaluation office of the uh, IMF. Um, I came to the U.S. about um, a good 17 years ago, and this was not my first job. So my, my very first job was at the Bank of England. was I was advisor to the Monetary Policy Committee. Um, and then uh, I was basically, my background is uh, monetary economics, a lot of inflation, a lot of interest rates. Um, after a few years there, which was fantastic, I decided to look out and uh, the uh you know, the career brought me to the research department of the IMF, where I covered a number of areas and including um, you know deficits and uh, demographic change, globalization. Um, as part of that, um, you know, I started looking uh, more into issues, of course related to fiscal policy, and the IMF is very very focused on fiscal policy, so, Uh, You know, I I kind of rounded myself up uh, from monetary into fiscal, and I started working on on countries. I even moved to Peru for the IMF, where I was resident representative for two years in Lima. It was a wonderful opportunity to know that region and, uh, you know, firsthand to to actually see a lot of the uh, commodity production that happens in the world, you know, from Gold mining uh, to uh, gas uh, production to extraction to things like, uh, of course, agriculture and uh, you know dairy production and so forth. Fisheries. Peru is you know in the seventies was the the largest uh, exporter of fish in the, to the world. Um, and after that, I came back to the United States to our headquarters. In 2008 when you know the global financial crisis was now uh brooming um and uh, there were visible signs of that already and i worked on on chile and then i actually worked on the united states and canada uh during the crisis and and then moved to, to european countries the nordics uh israel and so i did a lot of uh, a lot of Going around the IMF, which is a you know big institution, um, and uh, and then I went to to Rome. I worked as uh, for a couple of years. I took uh, leave, and I was director of uh, the Office of International Economics and Policy of the Treasury. And then I returned back, um, and and uh, had uh, you know other countries, including France. Um, and at that point, I started really. Um, I was looking already for the U.S. I wrote a paper back in the two, 2011, 2010 on on the fiscal aspects of the U.S., particularly the fiscal gap, which is, you know, how much IOU the U.S. has risen to um, uh, because of the fact that expenditure exceeds uh, revenues, including from, you know, the future commitments. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, medical care, medical uh, mandatory spending. And as the more I looked at the issue of fiscal spending and where a lot of that originates, the more I got closer uh, to the fact that a lot of that originates, of course, in, in health uh, issues and healthcare spending. And, all, and then um, over the years, I figured out that a lot of that, reading you know reports by the World Health Organization and many other uh, studies, that that basically relates to diets. Um, and then, when all these, you know, the, the 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 noise, and and the, the concerns about climate change came about, I I just started, you know, connecting dots with um, the, the dietary situation and the impact on fiscal accounts of so many countries, and the fact that maybe it was also the uh, um, the fact that agriculture itself uh, was. Uh, being crafted by policy in a way that was disconnected from food policy, and that led to, you know, distortions in prices that actually nudged consumers to consume possibly more of the stuff that they shouldn't consume and in greater quantities in some countries, or, you know, vice versa in other countries to consume too little of the good things because, you know, marketing and the industry convinced them even in those lower income countries, even those emerging market countries, that is good to eat stuff that is actually uh, not healthy. And, and so um, you know I started digging and digging and digging, and uh, I went down the rabbit hole. And I thought, this is a really uh, sexy topic for an economist, because people haven't thought about this before. It has a really huge macroeconomic impact. Uh, in a variety of areas of the macroeconomy, you know, from production to productivity, to jobs to fiscal accounts, and I decided to embark into, um, you know, a publication that could cover all these aspects. Of course, I couldn't possibly conceive doing it alone, so I decided to do an edited contribution. And I went out and uh, recruiting, you know, what I think were are the best uh, experts, the best practitioners out there, and and uh, and that's how the idea of this this book, Chris, came about the the economics of sustainable food, uh, which just came out in June eighth, uh, published by Island Press, and the International Monetary Fund, and I'd like you to you know to, to run you th- through some of the some of the sections, cause I think it's uh, you know, it, it really fills a gap in the literature. And uh, it's, I, I see it very much as a manual, like a handbook that takes people of all, you know, from all um, areas of, of policy, but also, you know, academia through uh, what are the both environmental, but economic challenges posed by current food systems. And, and especially focus then on how to fix those through public policy, which is uh, um, you know an under um, discussed topic today. Um, we talk a lot about the dangers of food systems, you know the, the damages they do, but there's little about okay, so what policies do we need and how do we um, decline them at the country level to make sure that they're effective? Uh, in different countries, in different ways, to achieve the same sustainability and health objectives.
0: I, I agree. I agree completely. And you do. It is an edited volume, so that's that's one thing that we should definitely note. Uh, you bring a lot of expertise yourself, expert knowledge to the table. But as you just described, you have a vast and and de- and deep experiential as uh, on the ground and in the field knowledge uh, that shows up. Uh, as well as your counterparts in this edited volume, and you mentioned kind of the connections that you saw, uh, started to see bubble up throughout your career, and the book does just dive into how everything is interconnected, and so it is this very complex. But m- and in the front end, you t- it is a manual, and you talk about who who should who should read this, who is this for. Who can kind of start engaging this content? Uh, and I think that y'all lay that out really well. And you you put the book section. So let me talk about the book sections for a moment. You've got kind of four sections you lay out. The, the production side of things, the consumption side of the system, uh, food waste, which is uh, continually a big topic, uh, and sustainable land use. So those are the four major sections. But when we start the, we start the book... You, you kind of identify right off the bat that this conversation is stemming from the industrialized uh, agriculture and fishing and how that has distorted food system over time, both for people and economies. And you recognize f- essentially five negative externalities. Could you talk a little bit about the negative externalities uh, in a little bit more detail? Yes,
1: yeah, so um, the food system um, is... Uh, of course, one of the two, you know, big contributors to climate change, um, and this is often, you know, not well understood or not not by the by the general public. You know, people think that climate change is basically a consequence of us burning fossil fuels, and that's you know very true that that burning fossil fuels contributed tremendously to climate change. But, but food systems also contribute to climate change in, in many different ways uh, also because they are fossil fuel based these days but, but mostly for, for reasons which are unrelated to fossil fuels And, and so um, when I um, uh, looked at this issue um, you know I immediately recognized um, that the problem is is a bit more complex than a tra- Organizing or uh, thinking, studying a transition in the energy sector because in the energy sector, um, energy's um, uh, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Change, calls energy a sector. But in economic terms, you know, energy is not a sector. What's a sector? That's electricity or power sector. Then you have transportation. Then you have industry. Then you have agriculture, fisheries, and, and uh, land use, and so forth. But for for the for the purpose of aggregating greenhouse gas emissions, they call you know all the sectors that that use electricity, uh, energy sector, um, and the energy sector transition requires basically to uh, make um, power generation um, uh, sustainable. Right, so so then you can basically go at a lot of the sources and just um, make sure that when you produce that power, uh, you make it in a sustainable way. So, and we do have solutions for that. We have renewables, and of course we have nuclear. Um, large hydro is, you know, was an option. Now it's mostly exploited. Um, so we have, you know, these two big big sources. People are thinking about hydrogen, but hydrogen in itself has to be. Uh, crafted uh, through energy use, and therefore people are talking about nuclear, hydrogen, and so forth. For food systems, is more complex, and you have a number of endpoints that you need to work at once. And so, uh, one is supply, and the other is demand. Uh, but there's a third area, which is um, food waste, because uh, what we don't eat is as important as what we eat, because we throw away all, a lot of it. So. Um, they say that, uh, according to some estimate, that if food system uh, was a country be the third largest emitting country in the world. And food waste happens for different reasons in different countries, you know. And we can go a little bit more in detail into that. So solutions different depending on the income tier of a country, and you know how production and consumption are structured. But the fourth area, which is really important in a redressing food system, is. Uh, is a conservation, because nature and the uh, natural ecosystems are not just a, a kind of quintessential input in our food production, but they are also, um, you know, um, key for uh, carbon sequestration. And why is that related to food system? Well, because uh, basically uh, half of the, existing land on earth is used by agriculture and there is a trade-off between using land for agriculture and using it for conservation and since we know that part of the climate agreements that we have pledged to and the path that we need to embark on to save the planet and ourselves is that we need to mark off a third of the planet for conservation if we are not doing agriculture well and you know effectively using the land in a smart way we're basically eating into that 30 percent um and we are compromising our ability to uh to you know protect this ecosystem which have a climate uh role because they are carbon sinks so you know the the way we use land and seas is very important for climate or earth's earth system stability and that goes through uh ag and fisheries uh because these are the, the 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 culprit, the number one cause of uh the degradation of uh natural ecosystems, are the number one cause of um biodiversity loss.
0: And so you've got, you've laid out kind of the big points of the book and you, you lay out these externalities to kind of really talk about, these are all the ways that the, the current system, which you recognize and your counterparts recognize in, in latter chapters that, I mean, there's reason for the industrialization. There was reason for the, the, the quote unquote green revolution. Um, and now we have to think about, okay, it did its job and now we have to, Think about all the things that came with that, all the all the consequences that resulted from that that we're, we're dealing with um, and that you, you even know like still dealing, would have dealt with, still dealing with um, in one point in the book. And so the fix is, right, the, the, the thesis of this is the great food transformation. And you say there's three steps toward that. Now, one for policymakers to understand public health, economic and environmental trade-offs between the the food system and other uses for land um two society needs very clear frameworks to guide the shifts at both country and regional levels and then third is the the economic policies and 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 kind of structural reforms to to make the transformation happen and you wrote in quote uh the design of economic policies to make a food transformation hap- happen is much sketchier and and so that's what i want to focus on for a little bit is is these policies like you note that one in steps one and two we have a pretty good grasp of uh, and then we're moving into the policies and that's where it gets a little trickier because there's not a whole lot of evidence there hasn't been a whole lot of uh, there are some cases that you point to in the book that are successes or even moving towards successes but let's talk a little about the the design of these economic policies what's available
1: so um so as i said um at the beginning, the uh, there is a disconnect between, uh, you know, food policy and agricultural policy. Agricultural policy, as you as you pointed out, um, were born really in some countries, in most countries after the Second World War. In some countries, like the U.S., maybe in the thirties and forties, uh, when you know, uh, countries uh, really suffered. Uh, to a great extent, uh, production problems and and even hunger you know, in a large swaths of the population because of either, you know, uh, financial crises or um, the way the land had been treated, and and the way it became uh, very quickly unproductive. Um, so um, th- those policies have been basically devised to only. Maximize yields. Uh, Maximizing yields uh, led to a series of uh, policy actions uh, that um, you know were for mechanization, for industrialization, uh, and for a greater and greater use of force in the in against nature. We could say. You know, in, in fostering almost artificially, abnormally amounts of output uh, with, with little regard for the quality of the output and with little regard for, uh, you know, the people that were working in those sectors. Uh, you know, people were just kicked out because a machine were replaced. That was fine. You know, that was part of the progress that we had to go through. Uh, and if uh, nature had to be, um, for lack of better words, raped through the use of, you know, chemicals and uh, all sorts of uh, heavy machinery. That was fine because, you know, these policies now were serving a higher purpose, the purpose of feeding, you know, those that didn't have food on the table. Uh, while this statement maybe was true at the beginning, you know, at the beginning of what they call the Green Revolution, which was this transformation towards, in, you know, heavy industrialization of the sector, um, you know, clearly it isn't it isn't correct now, because if you look at, um, you know, where we stand on, on nutrition, uh, we have a situation where we overproduce in some countries and underproduce in other countries with all through the same methods um, because of those farming practices and those fishing activities. And uh, uh, billions of people in the world, uh, you know, are malnourished. They're either overnourished or undernourished Um, and so the system the highly high-tech and you know industrialized and um, in innovative um, uh, configuration that we worked out um, the way to farm uh, in modern times uh, is actually completely inapt to feed us you know it leaves a lot of us out and even those that uh, have access to food and can, can kind of regulate themselves in eating the right quantity, it's very hard to find the right quality. And that usually comes at a a very high price, the premium to what one should pay for for healthy food. And so it's, you know, it's unaccessible for large chunks of the population, creating what I call, you know, health inequalities and food inequalities of immense, immense proportions. So, um, you know, the policy is the is a culprit here that really caused the system, and so the solutions lie in changes to the economic policies and structural reforms. And there is very little about it because, uh, first of all, uh, as I say in the book, and you know, in the first chapter, macroeconomists have washed their hands of this problem. Macroeconomists think that agriculture. And fisheries are almost not worth looking at because the value added of these sectors is very small. Value added being, you know, uh, the, uh, what is produced minus what are inputs that go into it. So it's like the additional value that the sector uh, produces, and that's you know that's a consequence of of the way the system is structured because the inputs are expensive and a lot of inputs, chemical inputs, fossil fuel inputs, land. Has become extremely expensive, uh, and therefore, you know, when you subtract all that, um, you know, the value added looks small. But, but you know, that shouldn't detract us from knowing and acknowledging that you know, food is what keeps us alive. I mean, we all eat three times a day. Food is our energy, um, and and uh, more importantly, you know, food is production. Is the largest employer in the world because, while it employs a, you know only five percent of the labor force in advanced economies, it still employs an enormous amount of people in non-advanced economies. And so, if we were to move to those economies towards the advanced economies way of farming, you know those uh, billion jobs would be lost, and we would have a massive. Uh, unemployment situation and and great uncertainty uh, and so forth. So uh, the policies are um, you know essential. They, they they do vary depending on countries. Um, but there hasn't been enough, I think, thinking um, of how to shape them organically across these four areas that we talked about, which is you know working simultaneously on supply on demand, on food waste and conservation. And and what we do here in the book with the with the co-authors and authors is to really uh, you know uh, taxonomize and, and identify a number of policies that are gonna work well um in, in a lot of countries and then we also give country case examples of successful successful policies in, in some of this in some of these areas so people can know, get a sense what um, the benefits, the economic benefits, um, and of course, health and environmental benefits of doing things right. Um, so uh, if, if I were to explore the, you know, the policy angle a little bit more, I mean, a lot of these policy are fiscal policies. So they have to do, you know, with the usual taxes and subsidies, tax exemptions. Um, but a lot of policies have to do with regulation, which is also in the economic policy domain. And and some policies have to do with structural reforms, Uh, so changing the way markets work, uh, which is, uh, of course, um, a domain of public policy. And then there are uh, some some ancillary policies that that can be used uh, to guide the transformation, which uh, relate to um, investment so governments have to to make the great transformation in food systems happen they have to invest in research and development for example in nutrition because you know um, that's it's it's one of the most important areas that we still need to uh and disentangle and to to be effective at changing nutrition policies they have to invest in Um, For example, just to throw some examples, you know, in uh, weather systems, uh, in, you know, big data to lower insurance costs for uh, uh, farmers. And there's, there's a huge role for public investment. These are actually small investment in magnitude, but they can make a tremendous difference and they can provide tremendously valuable public goods for the transition in food systems.
0: Yeah, I agree to a lot of your points. And and you've noted and you you make a very clear distinction that between kind of current state of things and as well as kind of these policy mechanisms needed to drive this great food transformation between advanced economies and, and what you all call less advanced economies. And, and even with that distinction and knowing there's things that can happen in, in one type of economy versus another... Uh, you also note, and, and hopefully our listeners are, are well aware, that's a little bit more complex. Even you mentioned subsidies as one, one mechanism, even subsidizing kind of industrial practices in advanced economies uh, and, and that commodity pricing program impacts the less advanced economies. Even if the less advanced economies don't want it to, uh, it's, it's more complicated than just there's mechanisms in each of these types of scenarios But they cross over, so subsidies in one place can make food prices cheaper in another place. That that changes what would happen in country. Can you talk a little bit more about that? That complexity.
1: Yes, absolutely. So this is, I mean, a well-known fact that you know, when the if if uh, an advanced economy subsidizes its industrial agriculture, and that usually, as it's been happening in the past, since you know the Fifties and sixties, it, it can lead and it does lead to overproduction, and the overproduction is um, basically reversed uh, or poured onto global markets, which means that smaller producers or medium producers in uh, unsubsidized countries that are you know less uh, prosperous are competed out. They're competed out of their own. Uh, production, so say you know, cheap rice arrives from a country that subsidizes heavily its rice production, and uh, you know the the farmer producing rice in that country uh, f- still faces higher cost of production because first it's not subsidized, and second it's not as industrialized, and therefore you know loses his job or her job, and uh, and and there is an influx you know of this uh, oversupply that comes from a, a large uh subsidized advanced economy uh production system and then um in, since in a lot of countries agriculture is, is as we discussed it's a huge employer that basically creates um you know a lot of a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, discomfort economic discomfort and stress in a lot of countries it also uh makes so that uh, the food prices uh, become basically um, um, a vagary of of you know commodity markets more generally, um, because, for example, uh, food prices depend heavily on the price of fertilizers, which in turn, under industrial agriculture, of course, which uses fertilizers, chemical fertilizers, And those fertilizers, um, you know, are heavily linked to the price of oil because, you know, they are synthetic and uh, fossil fuels enter the equation and therefore food prices get linked to oil prices. So now these countries that got, you know, the bad end of the stick and they lost their ability to produce in a competitive fashion uh, food and now imported because of the laws of the market. Uh, are at uh, the you know uh, the mercy of international food prices and uh, commodities markets oscillations. We saw that very clearly in two thousand seven and eight when you know all prices skyrocketed and they brought with them food prices, and that pushed just by that happening of the few quarters, you know something in the order of forty to fifty million people into straight poverty and hunger. So you know there, there are immense and immediate spillovers uh, of uh, policies agriculture policies in you know richer countries onto uh lower income countries. Um, they really prejudicate the abilities of these countries to develop, and this is not just subsidies, it's also regulation uh for example, you cannot uh import in the European Union, according to a regulation called the Novel Food Regulation. You cannot import any food that hadn't entered or been marketed in the European Union before a certain year, which is quite far back, like I think it's, you know, the 90s or the 80s. Um, But don't quote me on that, but it's, you know, it goes far back. So imagine you're, you know, a farmer in the Amazon and you discover a berry. That you know is uh, uh, is 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 then proven to be a perfect uh, fighter for obesity or influenza or what have you. Well, you just cannot commercialize it in the EU because there's a regulation says was it being traded before in the EU before this year? No, we just found it. Well, you can't sell it here, and you know there, there are a bunch of other things which I won't go into, like the size of food. Um, you know, the color of food, which regulate, which foods can enter countries. And that's another way in which, you know, agriculture in these other countries is impeded, is impaired. And, and so, uh, yes, the public policy has a big role to play. And the market is uh, very global, um, so it's very concentrated vertically and horizontally and that means that um of course you know a lot of these big companies which now hold what one there i think there's one company that holds you know a third two-thirds of the seed market uh two-thirds of the patented um um you know uh herbicide two-thirds of the the numbers are just stunning because in in market concentration terms when a market a, 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 a dominant player holds more than 20 percent is considered uh, a trust is considered you know um, a high concentration and here we're talking about concentration levels of you know 70 80 percent of the market in the hands of you know one two large uh, global producers so a lot of these producers of course um, are very influential you know people talk about Lobbies, food food lobbies or agricultural lobbies, all over the world, and and they do influence policy. So um, you know, um, some people say they write their own policies at this point. They just uh, uh, are very closely connected with uh, you know legislators, and, and and that's how the system keeps you know keeps floating in in the way it's configured. So to change it you know, uh, there needs to be consciousness about, uh, you know, the larger um, implications of what's going on here. And there needs to be a connection made between agriculture policy and food policy. Now, the good news here is that uh, agriculture, you know, even the big players are now aware that, A, there's uh, consumers have become more conscious about the food choices, and that comes out very uh, very vividly in consumer service, uh, retail consumer service, where, you know, shift, there's been a, a very detectable shift in the way uh, people um, seem to decide about the dietary choices. This is in part generational because, uh, you know, millennials and Gen Z have a complete different mindset about what they eat and what they should eat. But it's also you know related to the fact that there have been a bunch of reports for example about meat consumption and the impact on health and other aspects of uh you know food safety um that have created public scares globally and people have become much more attentive to what they eat uh, and where it comes from and how it's produced and that's you know um producers have become aware of that because people are moving you know with their with their shopping carts and uh, and that feels it hurts it hurts uh, profits and so they're now willing to move and they've themselves invested in more sustainable ways of production you know put a foot in there they just you know put a a, a chip on the on the, on the roulette table just one just to see what happens uh, but the other big reasons why you know this big uh, is moving is climate change. Climate change is actually impairing or jeopardizing the ability of, you know, big industrial uh, farms that monocrop that use a lot of fertilizers is, is, uh, and use a lot of water where water shouldn't be used or should be used much more parsimoniously for more indigenous types of, you know, crops and uh, animals. They become aware that this is, you know, there's this game is going to end pretty soon. Um, because soil is uh, globally degraded or very degraded, water is you know now being pumped out at rhythms that are completely incompatible with uh, water sustainability concepts. Uh, I mean, I can go into the details of what's going on, you know, from uh, from uh, China to Saudi Arabia to uh, the United States. Um, to parts of Africa, but I think it's you know it's very well known that we are a lot of these countries have now pumped out uh, water from fossil aquifers. These are unreplaceable aquifers and you know we, the, the number of, of wells and pumps that are being installed daily is just mind-boggling. water is just you know you have to go deeper and deeper and deeper to bring it out. And some areas of India, you know, some states, Half of all the electricity is used to pump water out because there just isn't water at shorter uh, or closer locations. You know, under the crust, so you have to go a thousand feet down. So um, climate change is a big game changer for this the food system and, and those who are involved into production, and and so they have become a little bit more responsive. I mean, of course, they're playing end game, like you know, the oil industry saying, let's see how much more we can profit of this before we jump into a new way of producing. Um, but but they're scared. and so um, I think it's a good moment to start thinking and, and writing down this uh, these new policies and see how they play out in the you know in the public domain. There's definitely support from public opinion globally.
0: Yes, you may you, you make a great case for all of those in the book. And so we've talked now about, some of the supply side um, issues and policy mechanisms. You, you just started talking about some of the demand side, uh, also talking about kind of the, the private companies and how they're starting to see the wind shift and uh, becoming big players in transitioning for this kind of great food transformation. Can we dive into, with the, the time we have left, can you talk a little about like one or two of the policy mechanisms levers that y'all discuss with regard to the food waste section and then also with regard to the conserving or sustainable land use section?
1: Yeah. So um, I think, you know, the, I, I just wanted to, to make sure that, you know, people listening in understand that, you know, if we don't change, a lot of people talk about, and we, we discussed at the beginning, that there's a almost a dichotomy. We, we need to work on the energy transition first because it's important, but, You know, work, um, research, and science has just shown that if we left food systems as as they were, just and we stop fossil fuel tomorrow, which of course is impossible, tomorrow, all fossil fuel uh, is just waved out. Well, the food system as it is now, given agricultural trends, population trends, and dietary shifts, would bring us three times over our 1.5 Celsius uh, permitted increase in global warming that, that, that would lead to a complete imbalancing of their system. So, so food systems are very important. Um, a low-hanging fruit uh, that you mentioned is is food waste. So food waste uh, is kind of um, a, a quite easy area for policy to make a tremendous difference. Um, but but the way uh, one goes about that, is, it, it varies depending on you know, where, um, where the food waste or food loss occurs. So in, in lower income countries, uh, food waste or food loss mainly happens in the supply chain, so at the production level. And that means that, uh, you know, either food rots on the fields or when um, food is produced, it's stored, but it's not stored well and being perishable, it just goes bad. There are enough, you know, cooling storage facilities because that's expensive, um, or transportation is not good enough because the barrier infrastructure is not good enough, and so uh, the time it takes, you know, to bring some fruit from, you know, for example, the the Amazons in Peru to the coast where it gets shipped, for example, to you know, the North America, is quite long. It takes about a couple of days to drive. I don't know if you've ever traveled those regions. There, you know, the infrastructure is still very uh, primordial. And if you if you make it to the coast, then uh, with your with your cargo uh, on a truck, then uh, you know some of those will probably have not you know made it. Uh, some of those products. Um, and so uh, you know, there really the intervention of public policy is to <clears throat> uh, first of all invest in weather and satellite imagery to facilitate <clears throat> the you know the more nimbleness of farming practices that allows for example crops to be harvested you know before a storm or before uh, you know a weather event that might destroy part of that crop and make make it to be lost uh, also invest in cooling systems and cooling storage facilities so that people can you know, uh, cooperatively or as a community store, you know, in, a, in common storage systems um, and also, of course, transportation uh, investments, which, uh, you know, are, are good for many other reasons, not just uh, commerce, but of course, they're very important to kind of vitalize uh, areas uh, of land that are, you know, rural, but there, you know, can be the engine of production of some particular food. So, um, that's for for those um, you know for those regions and those those types of countries. For advanced economies, uh, there's much more efficiency in production, so there isn't much loss in production. But there's uh, uh, most of the loss occurs at the consumer level, and some of it occurs at the retail level in supermarkets and grocery stores. And so, <clears throat> you know, for consumers. Uh, there's a lot of ways that one can go about. And some of this is, you know, it could be education campaigns, but a lot of it, uh, and, you know, it really instilling a no-waste culture in, in, from kids, you know, to, to people at different ages, but also has to do with the way, you know, the uh, restaurant um, and uh, catering uh, is regulated. So, uh, you know, you can't prohibit, for example the, the good food that has not gone bad to to go to waste you have to you can compel you know restaurants and bars to donate that food you know create special food banks organize or have them get organized into uh transportation to food banks and so forth Loosen regulation that impede you know the donation of food to some of these food banks And then there's a lot of work that is happening now, which is in part, you know, innovative, which is that of uh, doing this so-called dynamic pricing in supermarkets. And and that, again, you know, there's a role for policy in making it uh, legit and also supporting it through, you know, research and investment and innovation, which is basically linking, um, setting different prices for products that... uh, uh, have different expiration dates. So if you go buy a sandwich, uh, and you got two stand- sandwiches in front of you, one expiring, you know, on June 26, and one expiring on June 28, I think both of you, you and I, would probably go for the June 28. Like, you know, it looks fresher because it has a, a later expiration date. Um, if it's priced the same, you know, the consumer will go for the one with the later expiration date. But but if it's priced uh, more than the one that has a you know a closer expiration date, we probably make a you know wise decision. This is still perfectly edible food. I mean, it hasn't expired. It's two days from expiration. I'll buy the cheaper one. And and you know these are ideas that can, um, you know, that can really help uh, you know change the system uh, and 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 save enormous amount of food um, which, you know, basically, uh, we're, we're trashing the planet for food that we don't eat. If we go into conservation and, and, and managing, you know, sustainab- sustainably lands and seas, I mean, there's a, a, a tremendous amount of, uh, public policy responsibility in the way land and seas are used. And it's kind of not, uh, evident. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, national parks, although a lot of uh, a lot of land is saved, for example, in the U.S. through uh, you know the, the national park uh, system. But this has to do really with with the way you know land is uh, is you know regulated and administered in countries, and the same uh, relates to seas. So um, there, um, one can impose a number of. Uh, you know, either you know incentives through tax incentives or subsidies cross-compliance to conservation that fosters a conservation mentality. Uh, when, for example, the farm bill, um, you know, some of the iterations of the farm bill, you know, um, for example, uh, you know, in the in the sixties and seventies, became you know the, the yield became the, the the most important thing quickly, and so. It, the, the, the mantra was, you know, get big or get out. And, and it was really a mentality of uh, farming uh, every single inch of the land. So you wouldn't leave anything to, you know, a flower or to a cover crop or to anything like, uh, you know, uh, hedges. And we know that those areas are also part of conservation. They're essential for pollinators and other, you know, ecosystems. Uh, that are important for food. Uh, but we also need uh, policies, to, you know, for big uh, big protection of contiguous areas, both at land and at sea. And that has to go through a number of initiatives that basically uh, give a price for farmers to convert their lands into rewilded areas. So the idea that we have in the book, there's a bunch of, you know, Fiscal financial incentives, but you um, and this is not a new idea is to create carbon funds for uh, you know basically financially rewarding uh, people that that actively uh, keep their land uncultivated. Um, you know penalize uh, penalize or prohibit uh, farmers from you know draining uh, key ecosystems like you know peatlands or destroying mangroves for. Shrimp production and so forth. So, you you really have to have in mind conservation when you're doing agricultural policy, because you, as we said, there is like a tension between the two things. For for fisheries and ocean conservation, there are you know various policies. Some have to do with, just as we said, delineating some no catch, you know, uh, no mining areas, the so-called marine protected areas, and those have to be thirty percent of the ocean. So each country has to do their share. Which countries have, you know, their um, uh, their their coastal area is under their jurisdiction. And then there's the open seas, and their you know, treaties that regulate the open seas. But um, this can be, of course, uh, internationally coordinated. But there's also a lot of things that, wh- why is fish depleted so fast? What what makes it possible? Well, basically, um, there's one one culprit here, and that's you know marine diesel. Uh, most commercial fishing would not be able to go so far out at sea to chase with sonars and military equipment fishes in all parts of the oceans um, for a profit if, you know, the, uh, the fuel was, wasn't so cheap and if they didn't receive subsidies also from government. So redressing those subsidies to um, sustainable forms of, you know, fishery, which could be shallow trill trawlers or no trawlers, regenerative ocean farming, which you know doesn't actually involve fishes but just you know um, scallops, clams, and seaweeds. These are um, light uh, and high effective ways to completely transform these sectors in a way that it also allows the delivery of conservation objectives, which, as we know, are you know one of the three pillars of the carbon sinks of how we we're going to save the planet okay so there's mitigation there's carbon sinks and then of course there's the social population growth aspect so uh, i think uh you know i just wanted to give you some flavor about this too but the 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 book does go into details for example how some countries i'm i make the example of bhutan or costa rica go about their conservation policies how can they Enmesh in conservation into a successful economy and a successful agricultural production. They do, and we can follow their example. So we can tailor other examples to our needs. But there is a big role for public policy, and uh, including, you know, uh, being able to monitor conservation uh, through satellite imageries, to even facial recognition of fauna. And, and all that can be shaped by the right policies. And we discuss those policies in detail uh, in the book.
0: Yeah, and I, we appreciate just the the breadth and kind of overview of the policies and mechanisms available. And and again, to reiterate what you just mentioned, the book goes into more options as well as more details within those options. And some of those options come with success stories and, and kind of notions of where they've been used and how they've been used uh, well. And so as we're coming to a close, I just want to say thank you for, for joining us. And, and we took a big chunk of your time. And I know this book is brand new off the press. So how are you seeing it being utilized and kind of what are you working on now that the book is, is out there?
1: Well, oh, uh, I have a number of outlets, and uh, I'm presenting it, uh, in various international fora, um, including the Science Day at the UN uh, Food Systems Summit, which is coming up uh, this July, and then in the fall for the leader Summit. Um, but I really would like to be, uh, you know, distributed in academia and becoming like, you know, a vade for both policymakers, but also people interested in the sector. In the sector, you know, people that work in the sector to get a frame uh, around, you know, the way we should think about these issues and how we can, you know, work synergistically uh, across a number of disciplines to fix the problem. This is, I see it as the biggest, biggest problem and challenge we have. Fossil fuels is very important; it's key. But you know, like Johan Rockström says, it's the easy part. What's complex is the carbon sinks and food, and we really need to have all hands on deck to fix the problem. So I'm going to go out there and make a lot of noise with the book in my hand.
0: (laughs) Well, the fact that I have it in my hand, I I know for certain I'm going to be adopting some of these chapters into the food and ag policy courses I teach at the graduate level. So I really appreciate you and your colleagues taking all the time and energy that goes into creating an edited volume uh, because I think it does bring a lot of discussion to the table and, and presents some information that, like you mentioned, was a little bit sketchier.
1: Thank you so much, Chris. It was great. It was great being with you today.
0: Thanks again. Thank you.
1: Bye bye.